Welcome to Delighting in the Trinity with Michael Reeves, brought to you by Union. This podcast brings you teaching and preaching from our archives, and you can find more resources, audio, video, and books at unionpublishing.org. Now, um, this morning, we saw that among all the wildly different things that different world religions offer, Jesus offers an incomparable God, a God of pure, warming light, of, of kind and unreserved love. And I want to see now that he also offers an incomparable salvation, an incomparable salvation. So flick with me to John 17. Now, John 17, uh, this is the night before Jesus is crucified, when this is happening. And here's what he prays. But I just want you to just think what's going on here. Here in John 17, we have the Son of God speaking to God the Father. Or perhaps better, we have God the Son speaking to God the Father. Here, God speaks to God. And we are eavesdropping on a conversation within the Trinity. And the conversation is about you. Now, how do you get your head around that? Well, uh, the Bible gives us something which means we can visualize very clearly what's going on with this prayer. Because I don't know if your version has it. Mine does. But at the top, John 17, um, my version says it. Traditionally, John 17 has been called Jesus' high priestly prayer. And what people have meant by that is it's like this. It's back in the early days of the Old Testament, in the Exodus, when the Israelites had come out of Egypt, they were wandering in the wilderness, they lived in this enormous, enormous campsite. And right in the middle of the campsite was the Lord's super tent, the tabernacle. And uh, that was right in the middle of the campsite. And in the middle of that tent, shielded so that, no one could go in, was the Holy of Holies, the Lord's throne room, where the Lord sat on Indiana Jones's Ark of the Covenant. And that was his throne. And nobody, nobody could walk into that room and live. Nobody except for one man, the high priest, and he could do it once a year, when an animal had been sacrificed, and he could take the blood in behind. So what happened is, um, so let's imagine this room is, uh, is that tabernacle. Now, an animal is sacrificed out there. So an animal dies where the people deserve death. And then the high priest would take the blood of that sacrifice through right in here to the Ark of the Covenant, and he'd sprinkle the blood onto the throne. Now, that was the biggest gig of the year in Israel. An animal dies for the sins of the people, and the blood is applied to the throne of the Lord. And so, because it was such a big deal, there was preparation needed. And the way the prep happened is the high priest would go in just before the presence of the Lord, and over his heart, he would wear a massive gold plate 
on which were 12 separate gemstones, each inscribed with the name of one of the tribes of Israel. And so the high priest would go in, into the presence of the Lord, with the people of God, as it were, on his heart. And then he would fill the room with sweet-smelling incense. Now, what's all that got to do with John 17? Well, Jesus is our great high priest. And all that stuff that was happening in the Israelite camp was just a little picture of what Jesus was going to do. So, in a couple of chapters in John 19, Jesus is about to sacrifice himself as the animal who would die for the sins of the people out there. So, like the animal, he would die in the people's place. But before that happened, because he's not only the sacrifice, he's also the high priest. And so, before the moment of sacrifice, as the true high priest, here in John 17, he enters the presence of the Lord. And in John 17, he fills the place with true incense. Incense in the Bible is always a picture of prayer. A sweet smell rising before the Lord. So do you see what's going on here? When Jesus prays for us here, it's like the high priest going in before the Lord. And he fills the place with the fragrant incense of his prayers. And he carries us. He's praying for us. Look from verse 20. I don't ask for these only, the immediate disciples around him, but for those who will believe in me through their word, e.g. us, who've believed. So he's carrying us us on his heart like the gemstones before the Lord his Father. And that is going to be salvation, the result of atonement. Into the presence of the Lord where nobody else but the high priest could go, instead of the jewels over the high priest's heart, there is us on the heart of the Son before the Father. And that is one of the key aspects of the gospel that flows from the nature of our God, the fact that our God is Trinity, that we are given a new identity before the Father. We're brought before the Father by the Son to be as loved by the Father as his beloved Son. So look at verse 23. Jesus says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so the world may know you sent me and you have loved them even as you have loved me. <laughs> Isn't that extraordinary? John 17, 23. Now, does any other system of thought in the world give you anything so good? Even when they come closest to approximating this, what does any other religion offer? Be good and perhaps God will reward you if you're good. It's kind of thin gruel salvation, isn't it? But John 17 is Jesus offering something so sweet and rich, it's bad for the arteries. You've, you've loved them even as you've loved me. Isn't that amazing verse? There's, I think brush your teeth with John 17, 23 every morning. Isn't that incredible? what that does to your Christian life. And so with this God, you get a salvation you would not get with any other God. You get the greatest possible assurance that we are brought 
into the presence of God the Father to be as loved by him as Jesus the Son. We're not brought to be mere servants of God. We're not even one to have a kind of angelic, very good status before God. We are one by God to have his status. The relationship the Father has with the Son spreads out. He communicates his goodness to include us in that eternal happy fellowship. So we're brought into the Trinity. doesn't mean we're transformed into being something other than we are. It means we, we come to share their communion. Filled with the Spirit, we're brought before the Father by the Son to share their unity, their loving fellowship. Now, because Jesus is the beloved Son of God, what he gives us that no other could give us is the right to be the beloved children of God with him and in him. Just flick with me to John 1 now. John 1. And see verse 12 there. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Isn't that incredible? Wouldn't it be nice to be the child of a millionaire? Wouldn't it be nice to be the child of some incredibly wealthy and powerful king? Yeah. We are children of the emperor of the universe and his beloved. Jesus comes then not to boss us around and make us slaves. He doesn't come to have us serve him, as all others would. He comes to give us the right to become children of God. Not not just to be forgiven and accepted, much more. Because if, if the gospel was simply, you can be forgiven, you could think, well, yeah, I've been forgiven, but I've mucked up since then. But no, Jesus hasn't come so that we can have some kind of he loves me, he loves me not relationship. He loves me, why? Well, I read my Bible a lot this morning, prayed loads, and I've smiled at people and helped 20 grannies cross the road. But he loves me not, whoops, because I sinned. No, no, no. He comes... Not that you might have to keep yourself in God's favour by behaving impeccably. He comes that you might be an unrejectable child of God, never to be sent away. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God, welcomed and embraced as his beloved And never sent away. Children do not get unchildrened for being naughty. (laughs) My girls are naughty every day. I would never, never send them away. I would rather die for them. For I love them. With security we get to enjoy the love of God forever. 
And just see the next few verses in John 1 to get this. See, John 1, 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son became one of us. He, he came to us, but why did he come to us? Why? In any other religion, isn't it to teach you to do stuff, tell you how to live? It's not it here. Why does he come to us? So that verse 16, from his fullness, we might all receive grace upon grace. From heaven he comes to share all that is his, all his fullness. Do you see it? The son comes to share his sonship with us, that we might be the children of God. Now, just think and stop. And any time you feel insecure in your relationship with God, think, look at Jesus. He is the one utterly, eternally loved by the Father. The Father could not, would not ever lessen or moderate his love for Jesus. And Jesus comes to share with us that. You often hear Christians talk about receiving Jesus into your life. And there's something to that because John here talks about those who receive him. But the reality is it's not so much that Christ comes into your life, though he does. Way more importantly, you are taken into his life. And so Christians find themselves in Christ. They stand before God clothed in Christ. And that language of clothing comes up all over the Bible. One of my favorite verses is Isaiah 61 verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. That's what it is to be a Christian. If it's about earning, I fail now because I'm rubbish as a Christian. But I walk in boldly before my Father for I'm clothed in Christ. To be a Christian means to be in Christ. Now, Christ is perfectly righteous. I, failure, am clothed in his righteousness. That, that's the status I have before God my Father, not a kind of, all right, you can come in then, maybe. No, no, no. Jesus is the beloved Son of God. The Father looks at Jesus and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, I have received him, now I've been caught up into Christ, and now in Christ I hear that said of me, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. That is salvation. The salvation of this God, which is the only real salvation on offer, everywhere else it's more self-help than salvation. The salvation of this God is not about being kept at a distance, merely pitied, forgiven by the great lawgiver. 
the salvation of this God is to share the glory and fullness of the Son, to enjoy the love of the Father as our Father, to be welcomed and embraced as his beloved children. Oh, indeed, Jesus offers an incomparable salvation. Quite simply, nobody but Jesus offers a salvation anything like this. Here for free, God gives us not just forgiveness, resurrection, the certainty that all death, pain, and tears will be wiped away, more. God gives us himself. Jesus doesn't come to make us kneel, to give us stuff to do. He doesn't even come to give us some little blessing. He comes to give us himself. Everything. To give us everything. Now, I suspect the reason no other God does this is because while they might be prepared to offer paradise for the good, they won't offer themselves because not being essentially gods of love, they know we'd rather have paradise than have them. But this God, who is the beauty of beauties, is a God who, when you see who he really is, is simply more enjoyable than anything else. You can take your rivers of wine. I'll have Jesus. And being the God who is love, the relationship he brings us is not that of master-slave, even employer-employee. Unlike all other gods, this God wouldn't be interested in such a thing. He is after a lover-beloved relationship. One in which you're not given stuff to do. It's one where he woos us. He opens our eyes so that we see him as he truly is, and then we simply enjoy his goodness. No other God is interested in having people simply enjoy them. They want stuff from us, all the other gods. They need sustenance. They're needy, greedy. But this God doesn't need anything. This God doesn't need us as his servants. He's full to overflowing already. And so his relationship with us is not ever then one of taking from us. His relationship is always one of pure pouring out, giving, and us just receiving. No other God is like that. The life any God offers is utterly revealing of what that God's like. So if some God wants you to kneel and say how great they are a lot, well, that's told you what that God's like, hasn't it? That God is very interested with his own power and supremacy. If you've got a God who demands you kill unbelievers, you've clearly got an aggressive God. If you have a God who demands, well, whatever he demands, that shows what he cares about. What does this God care about? What's the greatest command? Deuteronomy 6, 5, love the Lord your God. Now, I just want to unpack that one because this is key. What does that mean, love the Lord your God? 
See, so often I think we read love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength as do lots of stuff for the Lord your God. Yeah? Because doing lots of stuff keenly, that tots up to love, doesn't it? But anyone who's worked in McDonald's, no, it doesn't. You can do a lot of stuff for your employer, for customers, for people, and it does not mean you love them. In fact, uh, flick to 1 Corinthians 13, if you want. 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says, look at how he's talking about love. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, <coughs> If I speak of the, in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So clearly, doing stuff is not the same thing as love. Right? Now, I can sing and pray and do and be nothing but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In the Old Testament, in the Temple of Jerusalem, they had a lot of gongs and cymbals, but they were external pictures of the praise and joy that should be in our hearts. And Moses is saying in Deuteronomy 6, believers need the inner reality. Love the Lord with your heart. And the thing is, you can throw your mind, your body, and your time into something and not have your heart in it, can't you? But what is that? Let's say I have all the appearance of love in my behavior, but no love in my heart. What is that? It's hypocrisy, isn't it? The lack of integrity. I'm lying to you. I mean, just think about how it would be in a marriage. If I went home this evening and I said to my wife, you know, I don't desire you at all. I have no feelings of warmth towards you. Hey, but don't cry. Because, you know, love is about just getting on with it and doing stuff for people, right? So, stop crying. I'm going to do a lot of stuff for you. Now, seriously, why would she ever want me cluttering up the house? She could get all I'm offering from social services. And love clearly is not that. Love is having a taste for the beloved, a, a delight, a desire, enjoying the beloved. And that is the Christian life. It is not just do it, get on and do so-called holy things. It is taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see and so have your heart one, that you delight in him. And it's all because of what this God is like. He's a God whose big concern is not his own power and status. He's not a God who's really into being bigged up by lots of worshippers. What's this God about? Well, the Father has always been about loving and enjoying his beloved Son. The Son has always been about loving and enjoying his Father. That's what he's interested in. That's what he wants to share with us. That is true godlikeness. So, I asked this morning, what is it to be truly holy, to be truly godly? What's it look like? 
Well, what is God essentially like? It is when we simply enjoy and delight in Jesus, that's when we are most like the Father. It is when we simply enjoy and delight in the Father, that's when we are most Christ-like. Isn't that a happy thing to be called into? You simply enjoy this supremely enjoyable God. Find your heart captivated by him, and that'll lead into finding how loved you are. It'll, it'll turn your heart to be more loving. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. You enjoy the great love of the great father, and in turn yourself become loving and are transformed What a happy thing this salvation is. For the salvation Jesus offers is to be called into the happy fellowship of an incomparable God, Father, Son, and Spirit, as they love and enjoy each other. So let me wrap up. Is exclusive belief in Jesus as the only way to the Father an unattractive thing? Well, the fact is everyone has got exclusive beliefs. The pluralist idea that all religions are simply different paths to the top of the mountain is an exclusive belief. But it's one that's offensive in that it has no respect for the differences between religions. It simply forces them all into its own mold. And all the exclusivity of that sort of pluralism, all it can offer is a sort of boiled-down, boring religiosity. Be spiritual and you will get to the top. But with Jesus, well, quite simply, nobody else is offering what he's offering. So we're not offensively saying Jesus is the only way to some abstract top of the mountain. But Jesus clearly is the only way to this destination. And what a destination. Not be spiritual and you'll get to the top. No, inclusion for all who'll have it into the loving fellowship of the God who is pure love. So just Jesus? Oh, yeah. Not Jesus and my efforts, just Jesus. He freely brings me all the goodness of God without any contribution from me. Not Jesus and any other religion, because no other offers what he's offering. Just Jesus. That is nothing to be ashamed of. It's something to delight in. To all the world, he offers not just one way to be religious. He offers the unbounded love of the only God who is love. Can I pray for you now? My Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that they may see that you are like no other God. You are like no dark and dreary idol. To know you truly is a delight. And I pray that they might dig into your self-revelation in the Bible more heartily, not, not to be good and appear right and try to get credit before you, but simply to gobble up 
your self-revelation so that their hearts might be one to enjoy you more. So that as they see you, their hearts might be filled with your love and they may know the great joy of being your unrejectable and beloved children. And I pray these things because my Father, I can approach you with absolute boldness in your beloved and most delightful Son, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to Delighting in the Trinity with Michael Reeves, brought to you by Union. Union is devoted to growing leaders and growing churches. Our School of Theology equips leaders for ministry. Union Publishing supplies them and their churches with quality theological resources and books. Union Mission supports and financially helps church planting and revitalisation. And Newton House, Oxford, invests in the next generation of theologians and scholars. Our vision is to see leaders and their churches the world over reformed and renewed in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out about our courses and learning communities around the world, to buy Union books, to discover support for your church plant, or to become a friend of Union and support our ministry, visit www.theola.gy.